Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Free Mormon and Mormon Discussion Podcast have combined tonight to go over a general conference from April 2017 and give you a general conference special. Uh, Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, Bill. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Awesome, awesome. Glad to have you on and and uh, just really excited by the material you've been putting out lately and just really looking forward to this chance for you and me to talk about some of the things that happened in conference I, uh, I, I should maybe start off and then I want to kind of turn it over to you maybe and see what your thoughts are in the Saturday morning session. But I, I want to make at least one comment with the general women's session, which is, and we'll just jump right into it, which is this idea, uh, that the general women's session is now seen as a session of general conference. Three sisters give a talk and then Elder Iring gives the closing talk and I want to make note that if people will notice, only one other sister outside of that general women's session, only one woman spoke in the rest of the general conference sessions. And I thought that was odd because in years past, that's not been the case. Um, I, I don't want to necessarily draw any note to any specific talk that night. I think the talks were kind and loving. And in the general women's session, I heard several Facebook uh Posts, blogs, podcasts, different people talking about it, that it was a really upbeat and positive. And so I'm grateful for that. But I just wanted to make note that the women spoke in that session and then only one more woman speaks in uh, the rest of general conference. But I do want to jump into the Saturday morning, um, uh, RFM and, and that's what we're going to call you. I guess the rest of this episode is RFM for Radio Free Mormon. But tell us maybe your thoughts on a talk or two from the Saturday morning session that, that caught your eye. Well, can I go back just to Joy Jones, who was the one lady who did speak in general conference just briefly? However, there are children who struggle to stand steadfast and immovable and whose delicate minds are being wounded. They are being attacked on every side by the fiery darts of the adversary and are in need of reinforcement and support. They are an overwhelming motivation for us to step up and wage a war against sin in our effort to bring our children unto Christ. Listen to the words of Elder Bruce R. McConkie nearly 43 years ago. As members of the Church, we are engaged in a mighty conflict. We are at war. We have enlisted in the cause of Christ to fight against Lucifer, the great war that rages on every side and which, unfortunately, is resulting in many casualties some fatal, is no new thing. Now, there neither are nor can be any neutrals in this war, end quote. Yeah, she talks about a sin-resistant generation, and she goes on and uses that as her theme. 
I just noted that at the beginning of her talk, she says that she got this whole idea of the phrase sin-resistant generation from a talk that was given by a man, President Nelson, to be specific. And she goes on, and throughout her talk, she is quoting from other male general authorities. So she starts with this quote, the theme of her talk, Sin Resistant Generation, from a talk by President Nelson. And then she goes on and quotes from President Monson, President Eyring, Elder Holland, and Elder Worthland. She also um, quotes from Bruce R. McConkie. So everybody else, I think, is pretty much alive, but Bruce R. McConkie, in her talk, gets part of his resurrection that we talked about in this general conference. So the church now has pulled his Mormon doctrine off the shelves a year or two ago, but now he's being resurrected in general conference with at least three and maybe four references to him in this general conference. And hers is one of the talks in which Bruce R. McConkie is quoted. Yeah, that perked my ears. I noticed the reference to McConkie at least three times during conference and and as you point out, it feels like the church was beginning to distance itself from his his teachings and his certainty of having answers on all these speculative questions. For instance, the Gospel Principles uh, Manual for the Gospel Essentials class um, for investigators and recent converts, that manual had all of the references to McConkie and Joseph Fielding's uh, Smith's work out and uh, removed out. And then also the, like you say, the book Mormon doctrine uh, went out of publication and is no longer produced uh, or sold in church bookstores. Yeah. So this was an interesting turn of events, by the way, you know, pretty much every one of the general authorities is going to quote each other. So it's not hugely unusual for the one woman who talks in general session of general conference, Joy Jones, to quote from other general authorities. But she does it with such prevalence that I almost get the impression that she feels like she's not allowed to have her own thoughts, but she's really only up there to regurgitate the thoughts of other male general authorities. Yeah, I, I often feel like the sisters of the church, when they're giving talks in conference, I'm guessing they feel a lot of pressure to to kind of reiterate what what those higher up in authority have said. And you can kind of sense that in a lot of the, the talks given by the sisters in the church. And, and I don't mean that as any slight, like I just think as time goes on and, and as these sisters perhaps are given more responsibility and more leeway and more inclusion in leadership meetings that you'll begin to see these sisters kind of uh, step out on their own and, and, and share unique ideas that, that have not been reiterated by a male voice uh, prior to that. I hope so. I'm not holding my breath, though, just to be frank. Okay. Okay. So jumping into to Saturday morning, uh, was there anything there of notice, anything there that caught your eye, something that you think would be uh, particularly interesting to the listener? I will tell you that during the first session, the Saturday morning session, I watched this with a friend of mine who is not a member of the church and this friend is not anti-Mormon and this friend doesn't know a lot about the church but I thought this might be a good time to have someone who's not a Mormon watch the first session of general conference and I could get the impressions of someone who does not have any background in Mormonism I would say that um, my friend was really not impressed with what was being talked about um, it seemed like it was rather boring 
and stifling to my friend, but the person and the speaker who got the lowest marks of all from my friend was President Russell M. Nelson. My friend was least impressed with him. And my friend felt, and I'm not saying that I felt this way, but I think there's a reasonable basis for my friend to feel this way, that President Russell M. Nelson came across as very self-satisfied, very supercilious. And one of the places that came across was when he gave the challenge to the members of the church. Earlier this year, I asked the young adults of the church to consecrate a portion of their time each week to study everything Jesus said and did as recorded in the standard works. I invited them to let the scriptural citations about Jesus Christ in the topical guide become their personal core curriculum. I gave that challenge because I had already accepted it myself. I read and underlined every verse cited about Jesus Christ as listed under 57 subtitles in the topical guide. When I finished that exciting exercise, my wife asked me what impact it had on me. I told her, I am a different man. So my friend says to me, isn't this an apostle? And I said, yes. And obviously, President Nelson is pretty old and looks it. I mean, he's in his 90s. And my friend said, well, isn't this something he should have done a long time ago? That was the impression that my friend had. And also, I had, um, that made me think, it's an interesting exercise for a person to go through who, at least ostensibly, is in pretty much regular contact with Jesus Christ personally. But instead, he's reading everything about what Jesus said in the standard works, and this is his exercise, and the impact on him is, I am a different man. If I can go on just a little bit about this talk, President Nelson, you know, it's a wonderful story and everything, and he says, wow, he had a big experience, but he doesn't say how or why he is a different man through that process. What verse impacted him? In what way? These were the questions that were left in my mind. And it reminded me of the Paris Hilton interview with Larry King a number of years ago when Paris Hilton went to jail for like 30 days on some kind of DUI or something. And she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing. And finally, the judge lost patience with her and threw her in jail for 30 days. She comes out. She's on Larry King being interviewed. And I remember that Paris Hilton is sitting there saying that while she, while she was in jail for 30 days, she took the time to read the New Testament. And Larry King was surprised. He said, really? And she says, yes. And Larry King said, well, which part did you like the most? And Paris Hilton got this deer in the headlights look in her face. And she says, well, it's all good. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I'm not doubting. You know, I, I totally doubt that Paris Hilton even cracked open a New Testament while she was in jail. I'm not saying that I doubt that President Nelson went through this exercise. But if you're going to go through this exercise with all of these scriptures, and there's a whole lot of them in the standard works, about everything Jesus said, I would have liked to have had at least one example of what it was that impacted him so strongly to make him a different man, and why. I thought that would have been helpful to his talk. 
Right, right. I, I unfortunately had to work Saturday and so I didn't really get a chance to listen to the Saturday sessions as they were happening. The, the, especially the Saturday morning when I did catch two or three of the talks from the Saturday afternoon. But, but Saturday morning, what, what I was interested by was I was logged into Facebook. I was on the, a thoughtful faith, uh, Facebook group, which is made up of progressive Mormons who are still trying to stay connected to Mormonism, still trying to participate within Mormonism, but have very nuanced progressive views. And they would have this thread that was the Saturday morning session, Thoughtful Faith Facebook thread, and you would get hundreds of people making comments as each talk was going on. And so I was able to kind of sneak away and look at some of those comments. And what really caught my eye was that early on in the Saturday morning session, and I and again, I don't know what, what you know, the, the first three talks were, were brother, uh, Joseph, uh, bro, uh, Henry B. Iring, Weatherford T. Clayton, and then Dale G. Runlin was the fourth. All the comments were very positive that these men were coming across with a spirit of love and inclusion and in Christ, you know, charity and compassion. And, and then I noticed those comments begin to kind of drift away into into the second half of the Saturday morning session. And, and I know all of us have different speakers we're drawn to and other ones that we we just don't feel as familiar with. Um, I know that there was a talk by a brother Mark Bragg uh, RFM that caught your caught your ears. It was titled Brighter and Brighter Until the Perfect. Uh, your thoughts on on Brother Bragg's talk? Well I will tell you this sort of will play into um, some of the themes Okay, well, the thing that really struck me in this story, in his talk, Elder Bragg's talk, first off, he's the um, speaker who gets to say the church is stronger than it has ever been. That's a quote from his talk early on. So he gets to say at this conference, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, and that the church is hemorrhaging members and shutting down stakes and wards overseas and consolidating them, Elder Bragg... Uh, I'm sure there was no pun intended in giving him this assignment, boasts that the church is stronger than it has ever been. This was like, I think it was Elder Cook, was it, who said at either last conference or the conference before that the state of the church is strong and everybody who's talking about, you know, it's losing members is wrong. So that was the first thing. But the main thing was his story about a fire at a stake center in Southern California. And that story begins at about the eight-minute mark, if you're listening to the audio. And what he's talking about is the light of Christ. That is his main subject. And as an illustration of the light of Christ and how it affects people who are not members of the church, because, of course, members of the church have the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is much better than the light of Christ. He talks about firefighters responding to this fire at a stake center in Southern California, in 2015, I felt that joy when I heard about the efforts of a brave group of firefighters who fought to save a burning stake center in Southern California in 2015. As the fire raged, a battalion commander called an LDS friend to ask where the sacred relics and sacrament cups were kept so they could be saved. His friend assured him that there were no sacred relics and that the sacrament cups were actually very, very replaceable. But the commander, the commander felt he should do more. So he sent firefighters back into the burning building 
to pull every painting of Christ off of the walls that they might be preserved. They even placed one in the fire truck in the hope that the firefighters might be watched over. I was truly touched by the commander's kindness, goodness, and sensitivity to the light during a dangerous and difficult time. In a darkening world, the light of Christ will shine brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Now, at that moment, I'm thinking, this makes no sense at all. And my friend who's watching it says, BS, because what fire commander, battalion commander, is going to send his men back into a burning building to pull paintings off the walls? My friend was looking at the pictures of the paintings, which are the typical prints that we have in most LDS chapels or stake centers. And my friend is saying, well, they're not Picasso's. Right. This isn't like the Cleveland Art Museum, right? This isn't, this isn't an original Monet on the wall. These are just reprints that are certainly in nice frames and they certainly look nice, but there, there's nothing significant, um, in terms of the earthly, worldly value of these things. Right. And so my BS meter kind of got buried on that one. Uh, so he sent firefighters back into the burning building to pull every painting of Christ off of the walls that they might be preserved. Now he shows a few pictures during the conference and actually those same pictures are included in the text of his talk at LDS.org so you can still see them. What you'll notice is the first picture has some firefighters on the roof of the stake center where they're fighting the fire, which actually I did some research. It started on the roof because there was a brush fire. It's down in Los Angeles and some embers got blown by the wind and up on the roof and they ignited up on the roof of the stake center. So that's where the fire was and that's where the firefighters are up on the roof. And then they're up there trying to fight it. It caves in. A couple of firefighters almost go in the hole. So the battalion commander pulls them off the roof. Now that makes sense. But if you look at the other pictures, where they're pulling the paintings out of the building, they have them outside, you will note that the building, there's no evidence that it is still on fire. And in fact, if a battalion commander sent his men and women back into a burning building to pull pictures off the walls, that battalion commander would be looking for a new job. And more than that, here's what becomes even more strange to me. If this was in the middle of uh, Draper, Utah, and I'll use just that city for some reason. If in the middle of Draper, Utah, you had uh, this incident happen and the majority of the firefighter crew was LDS, I could see them making the decision like, hey, we're Mormon. Let's just risk it and let's go in and save some of this stuff. Fine. But the way the story's told is this, this uh, firefighter chief is completely unaware of whether the sacrament cups have value or not. And, and that's a, that's a telltale sign that he's not a member of the church, right? He's, he's not a Mormon. And if he's not a Mormon, it even seems even crazier that he's going to make this risk when it is completely unethical and against every policy and procedure of his job description. Well, right. but if, And I agree with you, it's crazy. But that is the point of the talk, that this is the light of Christ lighting people up who are not members of the church. So this fire battalion commander is not a member of the church. He calls an LDS friend. He's shown to not be a member of the church because he's asking where the sacred relics are. 
Well, of course, LDS churches have no sacred relics in them whatsoever. They got some pictures on the wall, and that's what he goes in after. And then after he says that he sent firefighters back into the burning building to pull every painting of Christ off of the walls. I guess he left the, left the ones of Joseph Smith and the three witnesses inside. But every painting of Christ off of the walls that they might be preserved, he goes on to say this interesting statement. They, the firefighters, they even placed one in the fire truck in the hope that the firefighters might be watched over. Hmm. Hmm. And, and you're saying that from the pictures, it looks like the fire's already out. And, and that makes a little more sense, right? The, the, the building's been drenched with water. The fire's out. It's safe to go back in. And so whether it's the firemen or members of the ward or whoever, that somebody's going back in and, and pulling the pictures off. So you're right. This story, while it certainly is faith promoting, it raises a lot of questions because even if this story's true, what, what Elder Bragg just did was throw that firefighter under the bus in terms of him not following policies and procedures. Under the fire truck. <laughs> under, under the fire truck. So, yeah, and we want to hit back on that talk later because there is a theme that runs through this conference that you hit on. Um, Can I just conclude this part? Please. Okay, yep. because he makes this point right after he talks about this. Uh, they placed a picture of Christ in the fire truck in hopes that the firefighters might be watched over which is an interesting thing to do considering the fire is already out by the time they're going in to get the pictures. And then he concludes this by making his point, which was, I was truly touched by the commander's kindness, goodness, and sensitivity to the light, with a capital L, it's the light of Christ he's talking about, during a dangerous and difficult time. Well, I don't think he was sensitive to the light if he's sending his men back into a dangerous situation to pull paintings off the wall, which really did not happen. You look at the pictures, you see the fire's already out. There's no evidence the fire's still going. And in fact, I did a little bit of research on this, which you can do just by Googling some phrases, and you find out, what I found out, is that this was a fire that happened. It's Los Angeles, 7-7, July 7th, 2015, and that's how I knew about the, it was a, a grass fire and the embers getting up on the roof. But NBC Los Angeles did a report on it, and I can send you the link to that so you can put it up on the page. And what you find out is that what they close with, but from the rubble, this is the quote from the broadcast at the time, but from the rubble, religious paintings were rescued, quote unquote. That sounds like what really happened. And so what... um what Elder Bragg is doing appears to be gilding the lily and make in order to make a rather commonplace experience become miraculous and show the effect of the light of Christ on a non-Mormon battalion commander. Mm, 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 mm. It is interesting. And, and yeah, send me that link and we'll certainly share that. Let's, um, and, and again, we'll come back to that as we kind of touch on a couple of themes that go on throughout conference. Let's go on to the Saturday afternoon session and, and I'll share, um, just, you know, going to, to a couple of talks that perhaps touch me and I'll share a couple of thoughts as well. One is that this is the session that the, uh, sustaining of church officers is done. Um, we, we likely remember that in the last general conference, there were some opposing votes, a few voices heard. In this session, not necessarily with the first presidency, but when they go to sustain the Quorum of the Twelve, 
you can clearly hear that the number of voices have grown uh, in in raising an opposing vote, raising your hand to an opposing vote. It is proposed that we sustain Russell M. Nelson as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the following as members of that quorum. Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, M. Russell Ballard, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, David A. Bednar, Quinton L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Raspand, Gary E. Stevenson, and Dale G. Renland. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. The voting has been noted. Those who may have opposed any of the proposals should contact their stake presidents. And again, Elder Uchtdorf, President Uchtdorf, when he gets through the sustaining, recognizes that there were some dissenting votes, and he asks these folks to go back to their stake presidents to to essentially express their concern. I, to be honest, I'm troubled by that. It's one of the things that really bothers me because I know, I know in the past the way this was set up that it was if you had a an opposing vote, you had a chance to sit down with a general authority and express your concern. And my worry is by sending people back to a bishop or back to a stake president, you're creating so many middlemen before that concern gets to an actual top church leader. And and the fact is that many of the leaders in our church at the local and area authority level really treasure their loyalty to the top leadership and so the chance of a real concern making it through several people to the top is just it, it's just it's just not likely and and I'm not saying the chances are impossible but they're just I, I'm guessing they're way lower than 50%. And and so I just want to note there were opposing votes and again they were sent back to their their stake president. But I do want to like give some high praise um Elder Holland in his talk Song sung and un- unsung. Uh, he he kind of frames his talk around this idea that that we're allowed to have differences in the church. To remember, it is by divine design that not all the voices in God's choir are the same. It takes variety: sopranos and altos, baritones and basses, to make rich music. To borrow a line from the cheery correspondence of. Two remarkable Latter-day Saint women, all God's critters got a place in the choir. That differences are welcome, and it's kind of like a choir in terms of having different groups of voices, and those voices are going to be different. So the the alto and the soprano and the bass, all these voices are going to have different gifts, different perspectives. But he also makes note that while we can have differences, we cannot, in a choir, we cannot have a cacophony of noise. In other words, there, there has to be some boundaries. And so Elder Holland kind of walks this line of talking about what boundaries there are versus how much inclusion we need to have for people with differences. And I do love how at the end, towards the end of his talk, he, he specifically starts, you know, naming. There is room for those who speak different languages celebrate diverse cultures, and live in a host of locations. There's room for the single, the married, for large families, 
and for the childless. There is room for those who once had questions regarding their faith and room for those who still do. There is room for those with differing sexual attractions. In short, there is a place for everyone who loves God and honors his commandments as the inviolable measuring rod for personal behavior. That there's room in this church for uh, folks who are married. There's room in this church for folks who are single. There's room in this church for folks who cannot have, have children. Uh, there's room in this church, and he names it, he says, there's room in this church for people who used to have questions and people who still today have questions. And he also added, there's room in this church for people who have same-sex attraction. And and yes, I'm still bothered by the the labeling of same-sex attraction versus recognizing that people are born homosexual. That's still some hopefully some some thoughts and dialogue and discussion that can go into that. But I do want to give him high praise for just looking the camera in the eyes and saying there's room in this church for people who have doubts and there's room in this church for people whose identities are are right now in tension with the orthodox member of the church and and I, I just thought I thought the world of him at least saying that 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 it may not seem big but for me it's a step forward. Well, I think that's very charitable of you. Um, I tend to look at it a little bit more critically. I hope not cynically, but here's my view on it. First off, there is no room in this church for people with doubts. Bill, what he said was there is room for those who once had questions regarding their faith and room for those who still do. And this gets back to the dichotomy that church leaders are creating between questions are okay, doubts are not. So people with doubts, there's still no room in the church for them. At least he doesn't mention them, them separately in his list. He does say there is room for those with different sexual attractions. So he doesn't actually say um, same-sex attraction, but I think it's obviously in there because he uses the word differing sexual attractions. But then he says, in short, there is a place for everyone who loves God and honors his commandments as the inviolable measuring rod for personal behavior. But when he said that, the thought came to my mind, unless your parents are gay. Right, right. And and even when you emphasize those who keep the commandments, you're almost kind of separating right there in that moment that that there are things that you may be born with you may have an inclination, you may have an attraction, you may have um, this going on or that going on, but while we may accept you for your identity, we're not going to accept you with the connected behavior that goes with it. That your behavior still has to be keeping the commandments. And and when we define that a certain way, I mean that's that's the boundary that we're now within. And so while someone with a different Sexual attraction is welcome in the church. You and I both still know that some, you know, two, two men who in their lives are completely, you know, trying to live a Christ-like life. They're legally and lawfully wedded. They're doing everything else right. That homosexual marriage alone will place them on the other side of the line in terms of what Elder Holland is talking about. I think you may be right about that, Bill. 
Another thought I have is that Elder Ballard may be slightly miffed at Elder Holland for stealing his idea. Because Elder Ballard's meme is stay in the boat, and it was so successful and so popular that he repeated it in a second general conference, and now he's got Elder Holland stealing it from him and changing it to instead of stay in the boat, it's stay in the choir. And that's exactly what he says twice in this. Don't abandon your role in the chorus, he says. Of course, Jeffrey Holland now tries to take the same idea and change it a bit because he talks about God creating a world of diversity. And Jeffrey Holland talks about, well, we have diversity in the church. And he likens the diversity to a choir where there are different parts that are sung, the alto, the bass, tenor, soprano. But then he says... And he actually uses the diversity word and says, We lose the richness of tone and timbre that God intended when he created a world of diversity. So he uses the catchword diversity, but immediately modifies it to make it meaningless, When, in my opinion, when he says, Now this is not to say that everyone in this divine chorus can simply start shouting his or her own personal oratorio. Well, that has to do with expressing your personal opinions, if we're going to use the metaphor. He says, diversity is not cacophony, and choirs do require discipline. But then he really gives away, I think, what it is he's talking about. Once we have accepted divinely revealed lyrics, okay, that's the orthodox religion. That is the correlated doctrine. Once we have accepted divinely revealed lyrics and harmonious orchestration composed before the world was, then our Heavenly Father delights to have us sing in our own voice, not someone else's. So this I see, I hate to say it, and I'll try and say it as charitably as I can, but I see this as a classic example of doublespeak. And what he's saying is that God wants us to have diversity so long as we are all the same. Right, that we're all singing the same hymn, so we may have a little different voice, but we're not able to choose our own words. We're not able to to choose to do this in our own way, but but there obviously is is these boundaries, and, and we could debate all day kind of where those are at, but it seems as if his talk kind of says, like, inside your head, you can be as different as you want to, but your behavior has to be within the boundaries that we have, as the church have set. Yeah, that's really what he says. And I see it right there in what I quoted. Once we've accepted the, the divinely revealed lyrics, then we can sing in our own voice. And I don't know what that means, unless it means that we all have to say the correlated doctrine and not say anything different. And as long as we're saying exactly what it is we're supposed to say and not expressing our own opinions, if they diverge from that then, yeah, God loves to have our voice and we'll have all the diversity we can have in the church, which is no diversity at all. Right, right. I I do, I don't know what it is, but there's something about him relating it to voices in a choir versus Elder Ballard just kind of, you know, everybody's on a boat and just stay on. This choir idea least seemed more friendly, more inclusive, more, I don't know what kind of word to put on it, but it just, it just felt a little better when I heard it, then being told there's, you know, we're all on a boat and hold on and stay on the boat and don't get out of the water. I think part of it is that, that on the boat, you realize like the environment changes very much 
when you step off the boat. And, and there is some risk or positive and negative to be associated with that, depending on how you see it. Whereas to step away from one choir and to join another choir seems like there wouldn't be as much uh, danger involved. I know. If you leave the choir, you don't drown. Right, right. There's no, there's no immediate death or sharks or anything like that. Right. Can I tell you one interesting, if not ironic, thing that he said in this? And I know that he knows that we're talking about a church that is a multi-billion dollar corporation making that much in revenues, as I understand it, every year, plus all their holdings that gives really a tiny fraction of that amount to um, help the poor and is busy using lots of money to build upscale malls in downtown Salt Lake City and the whole nine yards that everyone's aware of. So it was in that context and with that background that I'm sure he's aware of as well as I and you and probably most, if not all of your listeners, he ends up saying this. He talks about how horrible poverty is and how it really bothers him. And then he says, quote, if we could do more to alleviate poverty, as Jesus repeatedly commands us to do, maybe some of the less fortunate in the world could hum a few notes of there is sunshine in my soul today, perhaps for the first time in their lives. And when he said that, I thought, well, what is stopping you? Mm, 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 mm. As I'm sitting here thinking about you saying that, and you're talking about Elder Holland and his kind of focus of staying in the choir, and yeah, you can be different, but you have to sing the same song. I, I didn't really plan to go into any other talks in this session, but I at least want to mention one quote by Elder Ballard, which ties into, I think, what we're both pointing at here with Elder Holland and the, and the point you just raised. There's... There's this idea. So Elder Ballard in his talk has this, this conversation about returning and receiving. And, and he's talking about returning to Heavenly Father when this life is over and receiving the promised blessings that come with that. And, and somewhere right about in the middle of his talk, he starts talking about some of the, uh, persuasive voices in the world. And he yeah, has he's this talking paragraph. talking about you, says, isn't he? He uses loud voices. Voices that seek to drown out the small and still voice of the Holy Spirit that can show us all things we should do to return and receive. These voices belong to those who disregard gospel truth and who use the Internet, social and print media, radio, television, and movies to present an enticing way immortality Immorality, I should say, immorality, violence, ugly language, filth, and sleaze in a way that distracts us from our goals and the plans we have for eternity. These voices may also include well-intentioned individuals who are blinded by the secular philosophies of men and women and who seek to destroy the faith and divert the eternal focus of those who are simply trying to return to the presence of God and receive all that our Father hath. These voices (laughs) may also include well-intentioned individuals who are blinded by the secular philosophies of men and women and who seek to destroy the faith and divert the eternal focus of those who are simply trying to return to the presence of God and receive all that our father hath. And and here's my struggle when I when I heard that that paragraph, when I heard that part of the talk, 
um, lots of things come to mind. And, and one is that what he's saying is like there are certain people in the church, they're just showing up every Sunday. They don't want to have to deal with with thinking through all this stuff. They don't want to have to wrestle with what's true and what isn't. They they got an answer from the Holy Ghost and they show up every week and they're just doing what they got to do to get back to Heavenly Father and get the blessings that are promised. And and how dare anybody how dare anybody raise a voice no matter how well intentioned they are that to to try and raise an awareness within our church of of some of its unhealthiness, right? And and what it bothers me because we're supposed to be a truth-seeking church. The glory of God is intelligence. We're supposed to learn by study and by faith. And, and we are. Paul, Paul says in the New Testament that we're to, we're to have, uh, the ability to answer people when they have questions and, and to be able to conversate these things out. And, and we have early church leaders from this dispensation that, that say that if, if the gospel can't hold up to inquiry, then we don't have anything here. And, and I'm simply suggesting that all of those things point to the fact that a true and living church is, is so true and living that it can stand up to some scrutiny, it can stand up to some questions, it can stand up to some conversation, and it can stand up to a few well-intentioned individuals trying to raise an awareness so that we can all be healthier here in the here and now. Yeah, I appreciate your usage of those uh, those scriptures. It is my impression that the church now basically believes in those same scriptures, but they've rewritten them a little bit. The glory of God is now ignorance, and a man cannot be saved in intelligence. That's how the church seems to act nowadays. Right, right. And that seems to be it, right? There's all these conversations every conference, and and we'll get to whether that happens here in this one. But I know in the past there's been you know Elder Anderson saying, give Joseph a break. There's been other conversations that talk about how how dangerous and uh deceiving the information is that's out there and you have the church itself not really encouraging or pushing its members to read the lds.org gospel topic essays it's kind of hidden even in the current curriculum it's kind of stored away at the bottom and and rarely am i seeing a teacher using it um it just feels like you're right like this this is an age in the church where they realize there is a dramatic shift that now needs to take place from the paradigm that members had 15 years ago to the paradigm they need to have 15 years from now. And they just want quiet and calm and silence until they can get to the other side of that. Yes, and I know there are differences between um, and different points of view between different general authorities who speak in general conference, even though they try and present a unified front. But I thought Elder Ballard was the same general authority who a few months ago was saying that gone are the days for seminary teachers when you can just bear your testimony to a student who raises a question about church history and that you need to be ready and know the essays and be able to respond intelligently and with facts. And yet it's the same Elder Ballard who's saying, you know, you shouldn't even be listening to anybody out there. They're well-intentioned individuals, but they're blinded by the secular philosophies of men and women, seek to destroy faith, 
divert the eternal focus. And why are they doing it? Because they're, you know, the Mormons are simply trying to return to the presence of God. That's all they're doing. And why are you bothering them when that's all that they want to do? By the way, two paragraphs above, you have to understand this is Satan's voice. When he says these voices, he's talking about Satan's voices. Go up to, you know, the, the paragraph right above, he talks about people who, um, uh, well, basically using the internet and radio and television and talking about immorality, violence, ugly language, filth, and sleaze. And then he also lumps those in with the same people you just talked about. But in the paragraph above that, he says, Satan's plan to accomplish his diabolical goal applies to every individual generation, culture, and society. He uses loud voices. So these are Satan's voices he's talking about. Voices that seek to drown out the small and still voice of the Holy Spirit that can show us all things we should do to return and receive. So I just wanted to put that in context. So when he says these voices may also include well-intentioned individuals, he's talking about the voices that Satan uses. Mm-hmm. And in and, and that paragraph, the uh, these voices belong to those who disregard gospel truth and who use that that paragraph you just said. Like I got through that one, and I thought, oh, okay, he's he's focusing more on you know. This certain segment of voices, but when he gets to the next one, those who are well-intentioned and are essentially diverting the attention of the Latter-day Saints who simply want to return and receive. Yeah, I, I get it. it. It felt like a little poke at the progressive Mormon voice out there to just leave these people alone, let them believe, even if that belief doesn't doesn't necessarily add up. Like, let's not raise the conversation. Let's not make this messier for these people. Right. Let's just bear our testimony and not answer their questions, which is the exact opposite of what Elder Ballard was saying a few months ago, if you recall. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly uh, exactly it. The only the only argument I guess I could make is that he's telling those instructions to the CES teachers. So the argument I guess could be made that the CES teachers, the responsibilities on you to read the essays and to explain this stuff to your students but as for the rest of us, we're under no obligation to try and answer these questions or have these vulnerable conversations. No, why should we? We're only the apostles of Jesus Christ. Do as I say, not as I do, which brings me to the very first line of his talk, which you are already violating just by having this discussion, and I am too, Bill. His first talk, his first line is, my brothers and sisters, it is now my assignment to speak to you, and your assignment is to listen. And and I'll tell you, the younger generation will not. They're just, I mean, it's just one of the facts. When we look at just the, the nuns and the people who are leaving religion and still maybe holding on to spirituality but leaving organized religion, one of the things the younger generation is pointing to is they just won't have this automatic, you're the authority and I'm the underling simply because someone says so. They need to feel like there's a trust there and they need to feel like, if they're placing authority in something, that authority is being honored, and that and that goes both ways. Yes. Can I make a couple of other comments? A lot of his talk is about setting goals, and he talks about goals and plans. That's really the theme of his talk. But another example of what I see as double speak, and I see it more and more the closer I look at these talks, I have spent hours and hours and hours going through 
every one of the talks in conference. I have made 35 pages of notes, which I'm going from. They are highlighted. And so I'm just telling you, I've done a lot of homework on this. It is now, by the way, April 6th. It's Thursday, April 6th. Happy 187th anniversary of the organization of the LDS Church, Bill. And, and my friend, there's also the possibility that this was Jesus's birthday today, too. Sure. <laughs> well, okay. But here's what he says. He, here, going back to Elder Ballard, excuse me. Here's what he says about goals and plans. You know, you're free to establish. Okay, here's what he says. I'll do the quote first, okay? He says, the goal is where you are going. The plan is how to get there. And then he says, quote, I believe that one important key to happiness is to learn how to set our own goals and establish our own plans within the framework of our Heavenly Father's eternal plan. So, in other words, we are free to set our own goals so long as they are the church's goals, too. Mm. It's like the old thing Mm. about free agency. Free agency in the church means the freedom to do what you're told to do. Mm-mm-mm. And that's not original to right. me. I think that was from Orson Scott Card a number of years ago. Right. That that you've got freedom as long as you stay in these bounds. Mm-hmm. And and it's one thing. Yeah, man. I, like I totally get it. Like I want to like step in here and 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 be kind of be more on the faithful side when I say like like there needs to be some sort of boundaries, right? Like not not anything goes. It shouldn't just be a free for all. And yet in some way, when, when you're really honoring agency and you're really honoring diversity and you're really honoring the fact that there's room for people who have a test of very different, unique, nuanced, progressive testimony of the church and you want to make it clear that there's room for them, that as much as you're laying out the boundaries, you also need to speak to and validate and acknowledge like what kind of differences can actually exist. And if you don't, and the message that is primarily heard is you need to look like this, talk like this, walk like this, and dress like this, then no matter how much you say others are welcome, it, it really doesn't get heard. It, there needs to be some balance in that message. And, and I'll just give one example. We want to say those with, with different attractions are welcome in the church. But when I look over the last 10 years in everything the church has said, um, specifically in general conference or in official messages that the general membership is actually watching and seeing and paying attention to, there's very little conversation, right? Like we're, like we bring out this policy two Novembers ago. We have a website, uh, Mormons and gays dot Mormon and gay or in gay dot org. And in this website, sure, there's some great stuff. And, and, and yes, when this policy came out, the church said some other things kind of afterward to soften it. But the reality is most members are not aware of the Mormon and gay website. They're not looking at it. They're not reading it. They're not using it because nobody in the church is really telling them they should. And so it lays off on the margins of our, of our faith uh, just where these folks are and the general membership isn't getting that kind of a, a message of inclusiveness and tolerance and, um, and compassion and charity towards people of difference. The mainstream message is a much different message. Well, it is. And I will say that first off, the membership is not going to listen to what the leaders say. 
they will pay attention and understand it when the leaders actually start doing it. When they start setting the example, not by words, but by deeds, then the members will see something and they will understand that there is a shift going on. But when they're just using these mixed messages with this double speak, I do not think that the members are catching the message. And I think that's because the message is just being put out there for the public to make it look like the church is trying to be more forward thinking, more inclusive, have diversity, when the reality is it's just the same old, same old. And I will also add that when you talk about this website, Mormons and Gays website, Almost nobody knows about it except for people who are within that specific group or people who are interested enough in order to know about it, like you and me. But do you remember the movie that came out? Was it a couple years ago in the theaters? Was it Meet the Mormons, that uh, um, that film? Right, right, yep, Meet the Mormons. When the LDS Church wants its members to know about the existence of something, it knows how to do it. And there was a, a short video clip that was sent out. I think it managed to get sent out to like all the members in the, of the church in the United States where he's telling everybody about it and encouraging them to go see it, encouraging them to buy tickets for their non-member friends. And if they have the money to buy out a whole theater and have this huge push on the opening weekend so that it'll get good reviews and, and uh, you know, all this stuff. When the church wants its members to know that something exists, it lets its members know that something exists. And the fact that the church does not let its members know that this website exists, that the essays exist, is not because the church does not know how to let them know. It's because the church does not want them to know. Right, right, right. If it was, if it was a big enough deal that we wanted to really incorporate these LDS.org essays into the curriculum, they they wouldn't be this kind of afterthought add-in to the present manual that that is kind of an addendum and and if you get to it you get to it if you don't want to use it that's fine like it would have some emphasis and and i i see that in a lot of things in the church and and the fact that in general conference i think in the you know the only two talks that have ever mentioned in any kind of positive way those with uh, with what they would call same sex attraction, what I would call homosexual uh, homosexual identity, that is Elder Holland when he when he made a talk uh, gave a, a comment in a talk a few years ago that that young man's attraction didn't change and nor did anybody expect it would. Uh, very first time I ever remember a positive thing being said about those with with. That are, who are homosexual, and then this conference where he mentions it again. If 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 we really cared about the hurt and harm that's happening right now to our LGBT brothers and sisters, you would you would think that there would be a an urgency to to have a Christ, even if they can't shift or change the doctrine, to have a Christ like compassion, and an urgency to discuss this left and right. Um, I agree with you. I think that the way the church tends to respond is to ignore the problem and pretend that they have nothing to do with it and to take the apologetic response, which I know you've heard, that there's lots of reasons people commit suicide and there's no telling that this is because these teenagers were gay and because um, they felt bad because the church doesn't have really a place for them within the membership. 
Sure, but even at that, then let's set, let's set the whole issue of homosexuality aside and let's just speak to the youth of the church and let's talk about suicide and let's talk about it in a way that these men, these, these prophet seers and revelators, sorry, these prophet seers and revelators, these leaders of the church, that they, that they go out of their way to tell these kids that they are so loved, that their lives are so precious, that there's no thing that they can do that, that the atonement cannot, cannot, cannot help them with or help or, or that Jesus can be their friend through it and to urge them not to take their lives. And the LGBT issue could be completely off to the side. All these men just get three of these guys in one conference to stand up and to look in the camera and say, you young people of the church, we love you. And, and we know that some of you are hurting and some of you are even thinking about taking your own life. Let us tell you the savior loves you. We love you. And, and neither he nor I want to see you think these kinds of things that life is so bad that this is the only option on the table. Like we love you and we, we want to do all we can to help that not happen. So, so from, you know, and, and you could frame things a hundred different ways, but you could, you could show so much empathy, love, compassion, and simply talk to them where they're at rather than, you know, setting out more rules and boundaries and, and, and only causing those who already hurt and feel less than to, to feel worse. Well, Bill, I agree with you, but they only have 10 hours to do this in. Yeah, I can probably figure. <laughs> I can, they only I'll have 10 you, hours, right. Bill. They only have 10 hours. And I know. That- right. And, and when you see, like you say, 10 hours of conference and I'm asking for three speakers who give a 10 to 15 minute talk because, right, there's, there's lots of concerns in the church. There's, there's lots of things that, that are a distraction to members or things that they need to be better at. I get it. But I gotta believe a young Latter day Saint youth taking his life is at the top of that list. And, and by the topics addressed and the amount of time given to them, if you were to listen to conference and make a list of what's important and what isn't, um, my guess is that, that the youth or teen suicide rate of Utah is, is not seen as a priority. Um, and, and to me, that's, a, that's a sad, that's a sad thing that we don't spend more time on that subject. No, you're right. And you got right to the answer there at the end, because I was going to ask you the difficult question. Granted that all this is true. Granted that you're a smart guy, Bill. And I mean that seriously, but you'd figure there's also smart guys in the general authorities. My question was going to be, if all that you're saying is true, and I agree with you that it is true, why aren't they doing it? And you answered the question at the end, which is they don't see it as a priority. Right. Or, or there's another possibility, which is that they understand that there is, this is happening and they are contributing to it. And on some level, in order to keep the doctrine, to maintain the boundaries they see as coming from God, they have no other choice but to see this as collateral damage as, as, um, what's the other word for that? Um, acceptable losses, acceptable losses. That's it. Well, I, and, and, and to me, that's sad. Like 
that's the only two options. Either A, they don't think it's a big deal. They're, they're just not aware of the data or they just don't see the connection. They don't really think it's Mormons. Maybe, maybe it's the half of the population that are not members of the church. I don't know what their reasons are. So it could be that it's just not a priority to them. The other option is that they see it as acceptable losses or they see it as collateral damage and, and they just feel like the best thing to do is because we have to hold the doctrine. We have to maintain the boundaries. So the best thing for us to do is just to be silent. Uh, on the issue. Oh, I would add to that, and because I think it is the second thing that you're bringing up, uh, and I would add to that that I think that they think that if they address the issue, then what they are doing is admitting culpability. I hear that, but you give me three days and I could write a talk that urges our youth not to go there without my saying in any way that I'm I'm contributing to the problem. Well, hopefully this podcast will get to their ears and maybe somebody will take note. Yeah, I don't think I'll be writing any general conference talks anytime soon. <laughs> um so let's let's move on. Let's hit up here the the general priesthood session. Kind of a strange thing happens. President Monson talks at the beginning of it uh for only a few minutes. And, and does not, does not conclude as prophet of the church, which would be the normal protocol. Um, your thoughts on other talks or other things going on in the priesthood session? Yeah, it's a very strange thing. He speaks at the beginning for about three and a half minutes. It's less than four minutes. It's very hard to understand him. It appears that those who are close to him and prepare for the conference knew that it might be hard to understand him because they had subtitles ready to go. For when he spoke, I didn't see any subtitles for anybody else, except for President Monson. Brethren, let us examine our lives and determine to follow the Savior's example for being kind, loving, and charitable. And as we do so, we will be in a better position to call down the powers of heaven for ourselves for our families, and for our fellow travelers in this sometimes difficult journey back to our heavenly home. I so pray in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Yeah, he he didn't say much of anything that seemed significant uh, to me or anything that hadn't been said many, many times uh, before, but he called on the brethren to follow the Savior's example, saying it will make us better able to call upon the powers of heaven. Yeah, the total time for the talk was three hours and 53 minutes. I don't know about you. I know you've been a member of the church for a while, Bill. I've been a member of the church since 1978, and every single session of conference is always the same length. It's always two hours, and general priesthood session is no exception. It has always been two hours long, except it appears that in the past four sessions or so, since President Monson's health has been failing, those times have varied and they have been shorter, sometimes more and sometimes less shorter than two hours. But this one ended up ending at basically 7.30. And I don't know what happened because I was watching it live, uh, but at about 7.30... Uh, President Uchtdorf, who was um, conducting, he had spoken, then President Eyring spoke, 
And then President Uchtdorf got up and he said, Thank you, President Monson. And I thought that was strange because it wasn't President Monson who just spoke, and that's normally who he'd be thanking. It was President Eyring. And I didn't know if that was just a slip of the lip at the time, but then it turns out that President Monson did not speak at all. Uh, it appears from Mormon leaks that that was planned in advance, that he would speak at the beginning and he wasn't listed at the end. They had leaked uh, what the schedule was for the, the conference. So I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but it seemed very odd that it ended basically an hour and 33 minutes into it instead of going for the normal length of two hours. Right, right. It is kind of strange. The, the, the one talk that kind of caught my eye in this session, and I listened to it uh, two days ago again, called to the work by uh, Elder Bednar. Elder Bednar gives this talk where he, he, he's been approached, he says, many times by missionaries who feel guilty when, when there's a change in where they're going to serve their mission. Each mission call and assignment, or a later reassignment, is the result of revelation through the Lord's servants. A call to the work comes from God through the president of the church. An assignment to one of the more than 400 missions presently operating around the world comes from God through a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, acting with the authorization of the Lord's living prophet. The spiritual gifts of prophecy and revelation attend all mission calls and assignments. Perhaps one of the lessons the Savior is teaching us in this revelation is that an assignment to labor in a specific place is essential and important, but secondary to the call to the work. Some of you may be asking yourselves why I have chosen to discuss in a general session of general, in a priesthood session of general conference, the seemingly obvious distinction between being called to the work and assigned to labor. My answer to this question is quite straightforward. My experience has taught me that these principles are not well understood by many members of the church. The single greatest reason for addressing this matter is what I have learned over time about the concern, the worry, and even the guilt felt by many missionaries who, for various reasons, were reassigned to a different field of labor during their time of service. Such reassignments sometimes are necessary because of events and circumstances such as physical accidents and injuries delays and challenges in obtaining visas, political instability, creating and staffing new missions, or simply the evolving and ever-changing needs around the world in the work of proclaiming the gospel. When a missionary is reassigned to a different field of labor, the process is precisely the same as for the initial assignment. Members of the Quorum of the Twelve seek inspiration and guidance in making all such reassignments. <clears throat> so, for instance, some of the examples he addresses are individuals who are called to go to some foreign country and they can't get a visa, so they're reassigned to somewhere in the United States. Or folks who, because of health reasons or because of some other thing that's out of their control, they're unable to go to the place that they were called to go to. And so he says there's a distinction we need to make, that being called 
on a mission, being called to the work, is a revelation that comes through the prophet. And then the call to serve in a certain location is a revelation that comes through the Quorum of the Twelve. And he's giving this talk, he says, because he wants to relieve these young people of this guilt they feel. And that if they just understand that the prophetic call was just to serve a mission, and that it's then a Quorum of the Twelve member, uh, an apostle of the Lord, then assigns them where to go, that they will understand that that with these with this revelation being parsed out really into two revelations, they will recognize that they were still called by a prophet to serve a mission, and that is completely valid and holds up, even if they're reassigned. And as I'm listening to the talk, um, as I'm listening to the talk, what what really struck me is I started asking myself, like, what are the reasons that missionaries, when they get when they get reassigned, because I served as a bishop, I served as a ward mission leader, and we had missionaries who were serving in our ward who had been assigned to foreign countries and they were waiting on visas. And some of them would literally be in my ward for eight months. Now you, you get, you get assigned for a two year mission. You're excited about going to Venezuela. You're excited about going to England. You're excited about going to Paris, France. And now you spend eight months in Sandusky, Ohio, right? Or, or worse yet, somewhere in the middle of, you know, South Dakota, uh, or North Dakota. And, and you have these missions that, you know, there's just not as exciting. It's not what you're looking forward to. You, you opened up your paperwork and you were thrilled because of the place that you were getting called to go. And I said, like, what would be, what would be the natural response if someone's called by a prophet to serve a mission? And then called by a prophet, maybe a different prophet as we're talking about, to serve in a specific location. And, and then I thought about it and I thought, I think the real issue here, at least, at least the number of people would have this issue would be greater than the ones Elder Bednar are speaking to. But it would be the idea that these young people, if, if they were called to Venezuela and the, and God called them there through a prophet, and God in the church can't figure out a way to get them to that location, then I think the natural repercussion there is that they would lose faith in God or lose faith in that prophet or lose faith in the church generally. And so while I don't think Elder Bednar is wants to say this, and maybe he's not even aware of it, but it seems like the more natural issue to want to address with this topic would be the loss of faith in prophets, seers, and revelators when one's inspired decision to do something doesn't go the way that they thought God told him it would go. I agree. He starts off by saying, it's all revelation. Everything's revelation. When you receive your initial call, it's by revelation. If for any reason you have to be reassigned, hey, that's through revelation as well. And he says the spiritual gifts of prophecy and revelation attend all mission calls and assignments. And he extends that to any reassignments as well. And then he asks the question, you, you may be wondering why it is I'm giving a talk on something that seems so obvious. 
And he says, my answer to this question is quite straightforward. My experience has taught me that these principles are not well understood by many members of the church. That there are members of the church out there who were assigned to a certain mission and then something happens. And this is the list of things that he gives that happens, right? Such reassignments sometimes are necessary because of events and circumstances such as physical accidents and injuries, delays and challenges in obtaining visas, political instability, creating and staffing new missions, or the evolving and ever-changing needs around the world in the work of proclaiming the gospel. Well, I will tell you that I don't know anybody who, if any of those things happen and it caused them to be reassigned to another mission, would have felt guilty about it. It's not like they did anything to feel guilty about. It's just something that happened. Well, they couldn't get a visa. Why would they feel guilty? Why? There's a physical accident that they have, so maybe they have to go home to the United States. Why would they feel guilty about being in a physical accident if, say, they got hit by a car or something and it wasn't the missionary's fault? Well, why would they feel guilty about it? But he goes on to say, when a missionary is reassigned to a different field of labor, the process is precisely the same as for the initial assignment. Members of the Quorum of the Twelve seek inspiration and guidance in making all such reassignments. So the message he seems to be giving is, hey, if this happened to you, don't feel guilty about it. And he talks about one guy, he says, came up to him after he's been teaching this message, who came up to him, tears in his eyes, saying, well, here's the quote from him. He says, quote, that he's quoting this, this fellow who comes up to him out of the office, a good brother, shakes his hands with tears in his eyes. I told you he was crying, said to me, the things you helped me learn today have lifted a burden from my shoulders that I have carried for more than 30 years. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm having trouble believing this. As a young missionary, I was initially assigned to a field of labor in South America, but I was unable to obtain a visa. So my assignment was changed to the United States. All these years, I have wondered why I was unable to serve in the place to which I had been called now I know I was called to the work and not to a place. I cannot tell you how much this understanding has helped me. And uh, Elder Uchtdorf says, my heart ached for this good man. Okay, look, there are all sorts of different people in the world. There's all sorts of different people in the church. All I can say is I've never met anybody who simply because they couldn't get a visa and so they had to serve in the States instead of South America. I can understand maybe a little bit of disappointment, but I can't understand a burden that they carry for 30 years such that they have tears in their eyes when they hear this great message from Elder Bednar. And it's not just this one guy. He goes on, Elder Bednar goes on to say, my heart ached for this good man as I have taught these basic principles throughout the world. Countless individuals have expressed privately to me the same sentiment as the man I just described. I am addressing the subject today, I'm sorry, I am addressing the subject today because not a single member of this church should carry an unnecessary burden of misunderstanding, uncertainty, anguish, or guilt about an assignment to labor. So I agree with you. I think that is a total smokescreen. I don't think there are people out there who are thinking that they are guilty because something beyond their control happened and they ended up not going and serving a mission in the place that they were assigned. I do think, however, that what is going on out there is there are many people who are in a situation where they receive a call 
which now Elder Bednar has just doubled down on it and said, this is by revelation, and boy, we receive revelation for every single assignment to every mission. It's by revelation. It's from God. God presumably knowing the future, and yet God calls me to South America. I can't get a visa. I end up serving in the United States. The issue then becomes not that it's my fault, but what's going on with this claim to revelation? If you're getting it from God, how come God, who's revealing to you where it is I'm going to serve my mission, can't foresee that I'm not going to be able to get a visa and calls me to a place that I end up not being able to go to, so I have to serve it somewhere else? I think that's the message that Elder Bednar's talking about. Right, and and I want to grant some charity here. Like I, I think it's feasible to say that there's... There is a, a group of people who, because their emotional makeup is different, because their the way in which they just you know maybe it's just a group of people who generally feel bad when things don't go right and and they they tend to blame themselves. Like I can see a group of people existing who who this is a problem for. My struggle is that if we took a hundred people who either feel guilt personally because their because their mission location changed or people who have lost faith because their mission location changed if we got a hundred of those people together i'm guessing it's like five in the first group and 95 in the second and and so it would seem like the more the more important issue to relate this doctrine or principle to is the idea that there's no need to lose faith in the Lord's mouthpiece. There's no need to lose faith in a prophet, seer, and revelator because he called you to the work. It's it's on us, the Quorum of the Twelve, who by revelation call you to a location. And, and so you need not have any loss of faith in God or in the prophet of the church Rather, it's the second group of us, but, but like you say, he also says like that's revelation too. So he, he really doesn't soften that, that blow to someone's faith all too much. No, he doesn't. And I think that's why he doesn't actually address the real thing he's addressing. Do you remember, um, first off, let me tell you why it is that I tripped to this. I was reading this and I was reading it and I was thinking, why on earth is Elder Bednar talking about something so boring, so inconsequential is trying to parse out the language that's in a standard form letter mission call that goes out to all the missionaries. And finally, it tripped to me because this is a common criticism of the church. It's an issue in church history, and it involves one of the first members of the Quorum of the Twelve in this dispensation, David W. Patton. Section 114 is given in the spring of 1838 to Joseph Smith. And what it says is this. Oh, it's April 11th, 1838. Verily thus saith the Lord, it is wisdom in my servant, that in my servant David W. Patton, that he settle up all his business as soon as he possibly can and make a disposition of his merchandise that he may perform a mission unto me next spring in company with others. Well, the problem is, is that David W. Patton receives this revelation in April of 1838 that says, settle up your affairs because in a year, next spring, 1839, you're going to go on a mission. The problem is, is that David W. Patton dies in October of 1838. 
in the Battle of Crooked River. I believe it was. Yeah, the Battle of Crooked River, 1838. He dies October 25th. So the issue that raises is, well, presumably the same God who gave that revelation to Joseph Smith in section 114 should know that David W. Patton is not going to be living until the next spring. So the issue it raises is, why is God then calling him on a mission that's going to begin next spring and tell him to settle up all of his business as soon as he can so he can go on that mission? It calls into question the source of the revelation. Now, I'm not saying that that is by any means the smoking gun in proving that Joseph Smith is a false prophet, but it is a legitimate issue that is raised in certain, well, that I've heard raised before, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And it's because I knew about this issue that all of a sudden what Elder Bednar is saying in this talk seemed to become clear to me. And that what he's doing is he's really addressing that same issue in relation to David W. Patton, but as it occurs to apparently a significant number of missionaries who end up getting called to one place and then something happens, you know, something hopefully, you know, less serious than dying in a battle, but something happens, they end up going someplace else. And the issue isn't whether the missionary feels guilty. The issue is what's going on with the revelation that's being received apparently telling them they're going to go to one place, but actually they end up going somewhere else. And I think that's really the question that Elder Bednar is addressing, even though it sounds like he's addressing a different question. And then, of course, I had to remember Elder Bednar from the conference south of the border last year when someone in the audience asked him the question, how should we make homosexual members of the church feel more comfortable at church? And remember what Elder Bednar said. I'm going to change the question. Yeah. And so there's the worry that, that we're essentially kind of doing that again. And yeah, I, I, like I said, I want to grant charity that, that he's addressing a real concern he has. I just, I have to believe that the other concern comes into his awareness way more often than, than the folks who feel guilty because they stayed in Sandusky, Ohio rather than going to Venezuela or going to England or going to France or whatever, whatever other location they go to. The, the, the other thing I notice, and again, I, I don't necessarily see anything negative here. I just, I found it interesting about two thirds of the way through the talk. Um, he has this quote. He says, one additional reason I have felt impressed to discuss this topic is my experience assigning missionaries over many years. For the Twelve, nothing affirms the reality of ongoing Latter-day Revelation more powerfully than seeking to discern the Lord's will as we fulfill our responsibility to assign missionaries to their respective fields of labor. I witness that the Savior knows and is mindful of each one of us I'm sorry, each of us one by one and name by name. And again, he's hitting this whole point. First, I want to say, like, I find it interesting that that's the most revelatory experience that the Quorum of the Twelve have. I just want to note that. But then I also want to say, like, for the person who's losing faith in where they go, not working out, Elder Bednar is making it really hard here to kind of smooth that over. I agree with you, and I, I just got to say this one thing. I hope that the listeners find this as interesting as I do. Uh, maybe they don't, but I'm looking at this, and what I think I'm seeing is a completely different message being given 
than the one that on the surface he's giving. And actually what he's giving is an apologetic response to this issue with revealed mission calls not working out. And when I go back, once that occurred to me, Bill, okay, I went back, I reread the talk, and the fascinating thing is, when you reread it with that in mind, it completely fits. Because in spite of the impression that Elder Bednar appears to be trying to give, it actually can fit what my interpretation of it is just as well. Can I just reread to you what he says this good brother who shook his hand with tears in his eyes said, and if you actually listen to his words, he never says he felt guilty because he felt inadequate. He, he uh, Elder Bednar leaves the reason for it completely ambiguous. Here's how he quotes him. This brother, talking to Elder Bednar, tears in his eyes after he's heard this message, quote, The things you helped me learn today have lifted a burden from my shoulders that I have carried for more than 30 years. What burden? Well, Elder Bednar doesn't have him say what the burden is. He goes on to say, As a young missionary, I was initially signed to a field of labor in South America, but I was unable to obtain a visa, so my assignment was changed to the United States. That's the facts, right? All these years, I have wondered why I was unable to serve in the place to which I had been called. He's not saying he feels guilty about it. He's saying he wondered why which is equally, if not more so, consistent with the interpretation that I think that Elder Bednar is really doing. And then he finishes it by saying, Now I know I was called to the work and not to a place. I cannot tell you how much this understanding has helped me. Period. End of quote. That's the quote from this young man, which is equally as consistent with my interpretation of what I think Elder Bednar is getting at, which is an apologetic and then when he talks about the countless other people, I mean, it's obviously an exaggeration, right? I assume that one could count them. But as I've taught these basic principles throughout the world, countless individuals have expressed privately to me what? The same sentiment as the man I just described. Right. So, so the, the awareness that he may be, he might be being very careful with his wording and the reality is that he's actually speaking to the idea of people having lost faith over the change in their mission call to a location. Right. Thank you. And the one place he mentions guilt is in a paragraph above. I just want to read this one sentence, okay? I'm sorry. I'm doing a lot of reading. But it's very important in some of these talks, especially this one, to really pay attention to the words that are being used because they are carefully chosen in many situations and unfortunately I think many times they're crafted in order to give an, a different impression than what it is that the real message is uh, I know that sounds cynical I apologize but I think this is an, uh, a case in point this is what he says about it the single greatest reason for addressing this matter is what I have learned over time about the concern the worry and even the guilt felt by many missionaries who for various reasons were reassigned to a different field of labor during their time of service. So it's not just the guilt, it's the concern and the worry as well. Well, what are they concerned about? What are they worried about? Well, Elder Bednar doesn't say, but I think it's pretty obvious what it is. Right, and when you say even the guilt, it almost places that as kind of a, 
another, a lower tier of priority versus the other two. Like it's like, like there's this and there's this, and sometimes there's even this. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting because I do, I think a lot of people in this, this age of having lowered the missionary age and so many missionaries having gone out and many of them at younger ages getting, going right back home because of, of emotionally not prepared for a mission and all the, the issues that come with that. I, I just believe like there's a lot of kids, whether they served a full mission or whether they came home early who have a lot of, angst and tension over over their mission in the call. Yes, and uh, just as a, as a closing, I mean, I went to, I was called to the Japan Kobe mission. I just served my mission in Japan, which will become significant later on in the podcast when we talk about another embellished miracle story involving Japanese missionaries. But um, he talks about one of the things, creating creating new missions, right? Creating new missions. I was called to the Japan Kobe mission. Well, they created a new mission when I was over there, and I was on the other side of the river when they created the new mission, so I ended up going to the Japan Kobe mission, and I came home from the Japan Osaka mission. I didn't feel guilty about that. I just happened to be assigned on the other side of the river when they created the new mission. Right, right. And at some level, maybe even some excitement. Maybe even, maybe for some of these missionaries, too, it may be, maybe a relief to, to stay in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, I, I find that hard to believe, but yeah. <laughs> but from your point of view, being in, being in, you know, being in a foreign land and going from one place to the other, probably not, not as big of a deal. Uh, it'll be interesting. I, I, I do think for those who have lost faith over this, I really do like the, the idea he's teaching. I like him parsing out the call to serve versus the location of the, of where to serve. And, and I think that's, I see that as a positive conversation to have. I do too. Uh, I hope you'll forgive me by saying that I get the impression he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. When he's saying the original call is by revelation, and if that didn't work out, then your reassignment is by revelation too. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it certainly seems unique to kind of pose both as revelation, but then to relieve someone's worry and concern because one of those revelations didn't work out but don't worry that's not the other revelation 